Dear listeners, this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. This week, I'm very excited to have the opportunity to look at how religion is presented in the context of museums with two esteemed scholars. My guests this morning are Dr. Olivia Caraval, uh, the recently retired curator and chair of cultural research and education at the Smithsonian Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage. Good morning to you. Good morning. Also joining us is the Reverend Teddy R. Reeves, who serves as the specialist of religion at the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. Welcome to you, Teddy. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. And I would uh, be remiss if I didn't uh, give a little shout out to your former professor, Shonda Buchanan, who is the one that <laughs> yes. originally introduced us. Uh, love you, Shonda. Yes, absolutely. She got me through undergrad. That's right. <laughs> and uh, I'll say that Shonda's also someone um, who I turn to for wisdom and guidance in in my process, recognizing the responsibility that I have acknowledging uh, the Native American land that we're currently occupying. So I want to acknowledge with gratitude that to the best of my understanding, we are on Piscataway, Potomacan land. And in fact, our our station here, Tacoma Radio, and uh, the city that we were in, the People's Republic of Tacoma Park, uh, take the name Tacoma, uh, from Native American origin, uh, but interestingly, it's actually an adopted name. Um, it's unrelated to the Piscataway or Potomacan languages. Uh, it was imported by the town's founder, B.F. Gilbert, from the West Coast language, Lushotsit. And fittingly enough for this program, it's a name that's been translated as Near Heaven. So that was an interesting connection that I, that I heard about there. And I want to encourage all of our dear listeners to continue to educate yourselves. I'm committing this year to using this platform that I'm privileged to have to share more information about what I learn about the people whose land we are occupying here in Tacoma and in the D.C. area. So to start our conversation with our, our dear guests, as we're, as we're thinking of, of drawing nearer to heaven... <laughs> Um, I want to hear a little bit um, from the both of you about how you observe uh, religious experience and faith traditions um, being incorporated or considered at the institutions that you work in. Dr. Cadaval? Yes. Well, when I first was invited to come, I was wondering, well, what do I have to bring to this conversation? <laughs> uh, and then I realized, you know, here that I am a curator with a center. And what we do, our, our signature piece is the Festival of American Folk Life. And this is a forum. This is a forum where we're inviting people to uh, represent, to tell their story in their own voice. And uh, part of that story of who you are and what you believe is, is certainly your belief system. So this is, you know, uh, pretty much where I started. And I was thinking back, you know, trying to relate this. You know, I'm, a, I'm from Mexico. Mm -hmm. I'm a Latina here in Washington, D.C. Been here a long time. Mm -hmm. And uh, way back when, the Smithsonian, even before I was, uh, I was, this was on contract, uh, they were doing an exhibition at the Renwick Gallery called Celebrations. And they asked me to do... Uh, to work with the Latino community here to, so they could present the traditions that they have here on the Day of the Dead. I said, oh, easy, you know. We all know that Mexico has a very strong Day of the Dead tradition. So I went out in the community and started talking to people, no Mexicans, by the way. We were very few Mexicans mm. then. And I discovered that it is almost impossible to celebrate the Day of the Dead, 
the day the way they celebrated back home because there's no cemetery. What do you do on the Day of the Dead? You go and clean the cemeteries. Wow. You bring food for your dad, for your departed, you know, so they stay away for the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't do that here. So what turned out was f- now it's taken me 30 years to realize what I learned then. I learned of how people, how we reimagine and reimagine and reimagine our culture to either represent it on the National Mall or to make a new home in a new place. Mm. So what we actually did, we called it the taking of the Renwick, because it was at the Renwick Gallery. And what we did is we invented a Day of the Dead that absolutely does not exist in Washington, D.C., but with elements from all of our cultures. Mm. I mean, we even put tombs there. We, were, we had candles right, and we're dancing. Right. The guards went crazy because we had the Renwick on fire just about. <laughs> and it, it was, it was um, amazing. In, in a sense, we created a little community mm a little uh, temporary community for the time that we took over the festival. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it was a multicultural community right. because that's the nature of D.C. So you were able to, to, to transform that space to have some sort of spiritual dimension. Absolutely. Yeah. And now that I think about it, it was that first, edu- first experience that really guided me and then working with communities coming from Mexico or coming from the Caribbean, where when they came to Washington, they, 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 were, they had to think of how to recontextualize. Mm-hmm. And so much of that is really the, what happens in religious practice, right? That people are in new spaces, they're interacting with new uh, influences, and so the traditions naturally change. No? Uh-huh. Teddy, um, for you, you know, speaking of, of uh, being in new spaces, you uh, are, are not a museum person, first and foremost, right? You are coming from the religious background, but working within the context of the museum. So tell us a little bit about what it's, what it's like at the African American Museum. Yeah, so I came to the museum after being having worked as a practitioner. So I was an executive pastor of a church in New York City uh, and also working uh, in black church studies at Princeton Seminary. And so when the opportunity came, and, and funny enough, in thinking about how uh, things kind of manifest, about two years before I came to the before the museum was even built, about seven years ago, they had a sign in D.C. I was driving through D.C. I was coming to get a passport, um, uh, <laughs> a last-minute update, and they had a sign for the museum. And I was like, oh, this is fascinating. They're building a museum on African-American history. And um, I went and looked at the then website, which looked completely different. And I was like, I wonder what I could actually even do in a space like that. Wow. But I know it's going to be fascinating. Mm. So fast forward seven years, not thinking about it, not even coming up in mind and now I'm working there in doing in the field in which I've been trained and so uh, the work in which we do at the museum around religion was really birthed out of um, the early thinking of our former director who now is the secretary of the Smithsonian uh, Lonnie Bunch uh, and others around how do we tell the experience of the African-American religious experience in the museum um, and so uh, thanks to uh, a generous donation from the Lilly Endowment um, to start a center for the study of African-American religious life. And so uh, the center has been going for the past uh, three years. 
And our job is kind of threefold. It was to collect, obviously, we're a museum, so to really tell the totality um, of the African-American religious experience through collections. And so we try to make sure that we expand the understanding of African-American religious practice, that it's not a monotheistic view, um, but that you know African-Americans have been a part of many religious traditions. Um, and so to highlight and to celebrate those traditions, public programming and also research and scholarship to really expand um, the understanding of how African-Americans um, have participated in these various traditions. Mm -hmm. um, and so in the museum is presented in a way where it's uh, weaving in and out of the story. So if you've been to the museum, you notice that uh, as you're walking through, you see religion popping up in every aspect, whether it's from slavery to freedom, whether it's in music, whether it's in sports, uh, religion has impacted all of these areas. And so we try to tell those stories and weave them in and out um, because religion has been a major part and continues to be a, a big part, though it's shifting in many ways, but mm -hmm. continue to be a big part of the black religious experience. Can you point to a specific uh, program or experience that that really uplifted your spirit being there in the, in the museum? So one of the programs, uh, we do a plethora of programs, but one that really has really been uplifting, I guess, my spirit lately um, is our God Talk program. Oh, yeah. Um, and so our God Talk program is a multi-city conversation series around black millennials in faith, um, really understanding. And it's a partnership with the Pew Research Center, mm. really trying to understand how black millennials are choosing to engage with faith um, or not engage with faith um, as Pew's data is showing that, you know, millennials are disengaging with organized religion. Um, but what we really wanted to do was figure out uh, to take that that quantitative data and make it qualitative. What's going on with black millennials? Mm -hmm. They're disengaging, um, but at a different rate from their, their white counterparts, mm -hmm. where they still have this strong belief in God, this strong belief in spirit. And so uh, that connects to how we do the work at the, at, in the center at the museum is understanding while there's all these faith traditions, there's this common understanding and common grounding um, for African-American people around spirit. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is what we've been, uh, out searching for with this God Talk program. And I want to just encourage everybody who's listening to this program to go track down these videos online. It is it is superb. I've been geeking out all week <laughs> watching these these videos. They're in it's in how many cities that you have recorded programs? So in? we have Los Angeles, we have Atlanta, we have Chicago, um, yeah. and we actually just wrapped a conversation in Dallas and Baltimore's coming up in April. Awesome. The really I want to just commend you because the depth of the dialogue that's happening there, a real interfaith dialogue, um, multi-faith participants coming from so many different traditions. I want to say the production value is very good, <laughs> so kudos to you on, on that. But, um, you know, as someone, I, you know, spoiler alert, I didn't grow up in the black church. So it's it's really amazing to me to to get this insight, to be a fly on the wall in these type of conversations where people are being so real about their experience, um, the beauty and the hardship, oftentimes coming from you know a, a, a Protestant uh, Christian background, but not exclusively that. You you have folks that are coming from a multiplicity of, of Muslim backgrounds and and um, and Buddhist backgrounds. So I just I'm I'm talking a lot because I'm very excited about this program and just wanted to say that I I got so much out of out of watching it. Oh, thank you. So I wanted to ask you are there were there some surprises for you that came up 
from doing that program around talking with your peers about their their engagement with religion? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that um, I've gleaned and learned um, throughout all of the cities is this understanding that, um, and in particular, Black millennials are really um, helping to reshape and redefine what uh, religious practice looks like. Um, and so what we're finding, especially amongst um, Black women, is that Black women are um are stepping beyond the traditional bounds of, mm. of religiosity. So I'm not just Christian. I may get my tarot cards read. I'm mm. not just Christian. I may chant and meditate. So this this merging of this colliding of faith practices beyond one limitation um, has been very fascinating um, and, and, and blurring of lines. And when we're talking about interfaith and, and that work and how it's being practiced and how it's being lived um, is very fascinating. I guess another thing that we're really finding in is that black millennials if they're disengaging with organized faith traditions and when you're thinking about especially those abrahamic traditions many of them you have a rising number that are becoming atheists you have a rising number that are saying while i still believe in god um i don't necessarily need the organization um and so they're creating other spaces to have mm. dynamic interactions and communal spaces brunch um <laughs> online digital spaces right uh -huh. yeah so you know uh, mimosa and um food and and breaking bread um mm -hmm. together right. with people of all different faith traditions can sit around the table and talk about the commonalities of what millennials are going through like the we, idea of brunch being tithing i thought was yes. an interesting <laughs> insight there absolutely right they're dropping talking about 50 bucks on 50 bucks yeah. debt talking about student loan, all of these things, yeah. um, but also how digital spaces um, are popping up as another response right. and creating community for folks. So hashtag church, hashtag church. Mm -hmm. so radio, mm -hmm. um, digital online spaces through social media. Um, and then lastly, it's just, it's, it's phenomenal to me of how this shift is happening, um, but also people are talking about mental health. So they're talking about their therapists mm. um, being another religious space for them in a sacred space. So um, it, it's been fascinating to kind of chronicle these stories. And as, as more information comes out, uh, you know, music festivals are mm -hmm. becoming sacred spaces. Right. Um, we'll touch, on, we'll touch yeah. on that in a minute with, uh, with Olivia as well. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. I'm your host, Jack Gordon. And this morning, we're talking with Teddy R. Reeves, specialist of religion at the Smithsonian National Museum for African-American History and Culture, and Olivia Calaval, uh, former curator and chair of cultural research and education at the Smithsonian Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage. So, Olivia, um, you're, you're a longtime resident of the Mount Pleasant neighborhood in, in D.C., uh, which has a particularly strong Latino community. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm curious, as somebody who's worked on projects that are specifically around that neighborhood and community engagement, I wanted to see how, you know, similar to what Teddy's reflections were on, on how uh, the black community, um, particularly the younger community, is engaging with religion. What are some of the observations that you see around how faith and, and, and the role of the church and religion in, in, in that neighborhood? Well, actually, the... Catholic Church has been very powerful in that neighborhood. Also, a lot of the evan evangelical churches. And I always thought, you know, that uh, immigrants would become uh, evangelicals here, but it's, that's not the case. Oftentimes, they already come as evangelicals mm. from their country, and it's uh, it's it's really 
bring you know centering that that place of how to make a new place home. Religion is not sort of an isolated thing, but it's actually a whole part of the way we live, the way what, the way we think. Um, I like to connect it a little bit if I can, you know, jump over to another site. Mm-hmm. I'd like to go over to the Mexico-U.S. border because you know, even though I live in D.C. and I've done a lot of programming there, a lot of my experience in seeing how how the pervasion of belief systems are in everybody's life. Uh, we did a program on on the Mexico border bo- on the border. And this was very interesting because it was in response to the 1994 NAFTA trade, where everybody was thinking of, oh, you know, uh, the damage it was going to cause. Of course it did. But also nobody ever thought that there was a culture of its own that lived on the border. And this is on both sides. And when you unique look at Unique to the border Unique to the border, mm-hmm. and it is a very interculture arena because you have American, Native Americans, you have, of course, uh, Mexicans, and then, of, and then you have, of course, Mexicans that are... Native Americans in their own right, you know, from the Huasteca, from the uh, from Oaxaca, and we had this program which was very interesting because I, I had no, you know, uh, it shows different ways of dealing how to express uh, express your traditions. Uh, we had a Mixteco group from Tijuana, and in trying to figure out, you know, how to best represent what their community was, they they came to us and said, well, you know, why don't we have an altar? I mean, mm. the altar itself became the place that unified them in creating a space home. and Building know, a physical altar a there. A physical altar, and, mm-hmm. and they actually told us how to build it, however. And uh, at the same time, we had uh, the Tohono O'odham, who are from uh, Arizona, it's a Native American group. The Tohono O'odham, they were, I mean, they were, they were not coming to represent any, any uh, belief system, so to speak, but they, mm-hmm. their spirituality is connected to land. And... Uh, it was the very first day, 9 o'clock, and all of a sudden I hear from Tohono O'odham, they can't start. And I said, what do you mean you can't start? Previously they had asked me, you know, for everything we try to comply with, they had to have a mound of special earth mm. brought to the mall. And you know how that is with a park to put earth on their grass? Well, mm. that was a battle. We got the earth, <laughs> and, the, and I said, well, what's wrong? We don't have any holy water. To before and they made it sure to tell us, you know, nothing can happen at that festival before we have our ceremony. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The mistecos, they got word, they got wind of it. In three seconds, they said, "Oh, we have a little bottle of holy mm. water." So that started that whole uh, dynamic of interchange, of understanding, right, of right. What, what these basic elements. We're really talking about some very material things, very, very basic. And there was a woman uh, from. Magdalena, she was a flower maker. She was Mexican. And we went to visit her to see and talk to her about the festival and on and on. And uh, she decided to gift the Smithsonian with this huge image that she had decorated. It's one of these, you, you buy the poster, and then she decorated beautifully with her flowers and other things uh, to the Smithsonian. Mm. So we received it, and I brought it down to the mall. I put because I thought she would like to see it. I put it in our trailer. And again, the very first day, she says, where is she? I said, where is she? Where is she? Oh, where is the Virgin of Guadalupe? And I you know, sheepishly said, well, you know, I do have her in the trailer. Mm. Oh, she's not going to like that. She has to come out. So I said, okay, you know, where would you like to have her? She said, well, she can share my tent. She can share my space. She had a little casita there. And uh, I said, okay. So, you know, I would go in and get a couple of my interns to help bring her out. She says, oh, you can't take her like that. So we had to find, because uh, these participants like to be ready, the program starts at 11, they were there at 8.30 in the morning, 
if I had to find some musicians mm. to sing for her, to process her over to her space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we got that through. End of the day. Olivia, you can't take her home just like that. Well, it's easier to find musicians at the end of the day. At the big, realized for those five days of festival, as opposed to get up exactly. early. Exactly. <laughs> in the morning, it was very, very difficult to always find a musician. Uh -huh. And at one time, I was desperate. I went to Carmen Moreno, who was one of our beautiful Mexican singers, and uh, she said, "Yeah, I can't. I'm a Jehovah's Witness." Mm. Don't believe in that, <laughs> Carmen. Please, you know, believe in the music. Yeah. She would not wow. Wow. play for her. You know, so it's here you have the tensions, you have the commonalities, right. and here you have uh, an expression that Doña Gloria gave us of what the Virgin of Guadalupe meant and her not understanding why we didn't automatically realize how we treat the Virgin of Guadalupe, how she was part of our everyday as well as a ceremonial. Right. And it points to this idea that I, I wanted to talk to both of you about, uh, this idea of how do we maintain reverence or a divine reverence, right? Reverence is a virtue. It's, it's, it's something that we strive for in our spiritual lives, our community engagement and our interactions with, with others and, and with the divine. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, how, how, how do you find, um, and I'll turn to Teddy, how do you find that you hold divine reverence along the ways that that olivia was talking about that that cultural um respect um in in an academic setting where it can be sort of a dry observation of the other as opposed to that 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 engaged feeling when you're actually part of a religious community or experience yeah i think we do that work by going into the communities um and so moving beyond the walls of the museum to mm -hmm. going into these local communities being with speaking with worshiping with um as a way to hold the reverence and the importance of those communities and uplifting their voices and so in particular thinking about we were in jackson mississippi which has a large uh, muslim population and so we went to support some of the work they were doing at a local local uh, Muslim museum uh, around an exhibition that they were opening. And so uh, we went, we, we went to uh, temple with them, we sat in the space. And, and so it's this reverence, it's understanding that our artifacts have a community attached to them, um, that these stories that we have on the walls, the in, these interactives we have on the walls have communities with them. Mm -hmm. And so we go, we do that work, but we also collect oral histories. That's a major part of showing reverence for these various communities. Uh, so we've done oral histories with uh, people from the Baha'i community. We've done oral histories from with people from Buddhist communities. And so um, understanding that there's a story attached to it, mm -hmm. um, that there is, there's love, there's time spent, um, in particular thinking about uh, some oral histories we, we did with uh, a woman who had been in her church for 93 years wow. um, and she had been a member. She says, I was I was thrust upon this space. Um, and so showing reverence to her in that moment of listening, of, of, of uplifting. Um, but also when we take it back to the four walls of the museum, also showing reverence in how we care for the artifacts. Um, I think that that is very important on our end, knowing that certain traditions, right, of how do you touch this? Who touched this? Um, how do you tell this story in a way that's authentic to the community 
which means you have to bring the community in to help you mm -hmm. tell that story. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've tried to maintain uh, this reverence for not only the artifacts, but also for the stories um, so that people feel that and that we feel that we're not just displaying these things, um, but that there's a history, there's a love, there's an honor and a respect in these communities. And also it comes with decentralizing. Mm -hmm. um, and so decentralizing one story, um, and that has been the work of our center and our museum around black religion is to so, to say that there isn't just one dominant there's not just one dominant story right mm -hmm. so a third of the enslaved population brought to this uh to this country were muslim um, but the, the story is typically dominated by a Christocentric view for African-Americans around faith and practice and religion. And so we try to decentralize that story to say that black folks have been practicing religion in a, a variety of ways um, since they've gotten here and before. And so also uplifting some of those African traditions as well. Um, so that, that, that has been how we've shown that reverence mm -hmm. um, in, in, in the multifaceted ways that we've done it. Yeah. Working with living culture, we should not be as, as, as curious we should not be afraid of theater. Theater is very important. Theater is, is a way that framing, we are always, things are not, we assume that things are natural, you know, back home natural. No, we are always contextualizing, we're always framing, we're framing our own culture. And then when you're framing for an audience that is different from the cultures you're presenting, you really need to engage the people that you're presenting in conniving with you of how to do good theater theater with the elements that they think they're appropriate. But in, in the end, you know, you are constructing a representation. And when that constructed representation engages the people whose story is being told, it is very different. And of course, as a curator, you have to, uh, you have to be fearful sometimes because you have to let go. You have to share authority. And that's been you know, one of the largest lessons I've mm. ever had. And sharing that authority is not easy because in the end, you know, it is the Smithsonian. Mm -hmm. But then on the other hand, we have always, we can always say, we are a forum. We're opening the forum. This is not the voice of the Smithsonian. We believe there's a multivocality uh, in, 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 in the world, you know, that so we should make space for it. But to have that multivocality, you should have these individual voices actually state and frame in the way they would do it, but because we are on the national, you know, with the format that we understand, invite them to understand what that format is, how mm -hmm. to make that format work for them. Again, coming back to this uh, virtue of, of being a vessel, right? Mm -hmm. Of being, being, being a, a, a way to facilitate that voice coming through, you know, in, in, in religious context, we might think of it in terms of the divine voice sort of mm -hmm. speaking through uh, an individual or through their works, right? And, and it sounds like in a, in a service-oriented institution like the Smithsonian, if I'm understanding it correctly, it, it, you know, helping, helping to uh, augment the voices or give a platform for these voices of, of groups that we might not otherwise hear about. And we have a very particular platform because, you know, if you are in the, on the National Mall, you are under the auspices of the Smithsonian, mm -hmm. you are bestowing on what you're presenting as, you know, we're saying, then I said, you know, this is a real thing, this is valid, this is important for you to understand. And we do want people to take advantage of this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. So we talked a little bit about music before. I want to also uh, come back around to that idea because I think obviously in, in both 
the Latino community and the the African American community, or beyond that, the Black community, music is so principal to to spiritual expression, right? And and in so many traditions, this is the case that it can be a way to break down barriers. And so when we engage in festivals or listen to music, um, it can be something that touches the spirit. So I'm curious, particularly when it comes to music, um, how is that part of this dialogue? How is it part of this engagement? You guys actually had DJs on stage with you during God Talk, you know, as part of the panelists and part of the program. There were DJs there, so music even was there. Yeah, because you, you can't divorce the black uh, experience or the black religious experience without music, right? Mm -hmm. Music is an essential part of the black experience. And I mean, when you're thinking about jazz, you're thinking about spirit, Negro spirituals, you're thinking about um, the evolution of hip hop. Um, music has played a big part of that. I guess one particular way that music really was intertwined, especially in our God Talk conversation, is that uh, we partnered with Pharrell Williams at his Something in the Water Music Festival last year to present the God Talk conversation. Oh, wow. um, so really understanding that music and faith conversation um, go hand in hand and that music in many ways for a lot of black millennials um, is becoming a space mm. uh, for them to have conversations. So we we look at uh, Kanye West's hip hop album that uh, just came out, which was a Sunday service album around gospel music. Um, you look at Snoop Dogg, who did an album album on gospel music. So these lines of hip hop and gospel being blurred and, and, and uh, these artists beginning to embrace these spaces. And so at that festival, understanding that for a lot of black millennials, music festivals are becoming sacred spaces, um, being there and presenting this conversation with seven millennials at a music festival where you have people coming to hear music and, and other aspects. Um, and 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 seeing how they mixed and how they meshed uh, was a beautiful thing um, because what we really realize in this conversation is, and especially at uh, for a Williams uh, festival, is that music is a safe space for many millennials, um, and and how music is performed, how. Um, spaces where music can be interrogated and, and listened to, um, that these festivals in some way has become um, a space where they can be their authentic selves. Um, and, and this is really using their language, uh, that this music festival becomes a space, whether it's through dress, whether it's through how they present, mm -hmm. um, whether it's the dialogue that happens, uh, the the movement of the body, all of mm -hmm. these different things. It becomes it's a liberating experience. Absolutely, um, for them. And so, in a way that some traditional religious spaces have not mm. been. That are more buckled um, down. And that are more buckled down, mm. some would say restrained or, or, or using that language. Um, and so having it in that space where people are coming to experience um, the all aspects of what music does to the body and what it has traditionally done to the body for black people, um, that millennials are saying a music festival is sacred. And so when we think about a sacred event, we think that there's a communal aspect to it. There's a reverence aspect, aspect to it. Um, there's typically some type of message aspect to it. And so really moving beyond how we define or even construct this idea of the sacred um, mm -hmm. to expand on that and to move and push to be on the boundaries has been um, something that we are fascinated with, something we've welcomed, mm -hmm. um, but also has been a challenge for some in traditional religious spaces. Yeah. Um, Olivia, I'm, I'm curious, when you're introducing some of that sacred music in the programs that you put together with the Smithsonian, 
how do you communicate those spiritual messages in a way that that people understand that this is coming from a place that is sacred and not simply exotic? Uh, ex- yeah, yeah, exoticizing. Exactly. There you go. Uh, you know, there's there's two sides to that because there's a side with the audience, as you say, you know, where people can see it as uh, uh, exotic, as not, not you know something. Uh, out there that's nothing to do with them. And then you have, on the other side, you have working with with our communities that you are presenting. Uh, an example here is working with, a, I did a program on the Caribbean music. And we're very, very, very careful to talk about social music because mm-hmm. in working with, with the Maroons in particular, mm-hmm. uh, they felt very strongly that they would be very happy to participate in the, in the festival, but they were not going to open their rituals to the general public, and this meant the ritual uh, performance. Uh, meanwhile, we are, this was a uh, Caribbean program, so we also had a Haitian component where we had the horn for itself, and we were actually having ceremonies all day and possessions. And uh, when the, the Maroons felt very much in competition, mm. so they felt, uh, we can do it. And, you know, 7 o'clock in the morning, they call from James Early, Olivia, you got to get flowers. And you got to get yellow flowers for sure. And you mm-hmm. have to get these tablecloths. Because it also they felt that they really had to also f- figure out a way of how to address this audience. Mm-hmm. Okay, that was very important. A, a responsibility to share? Is that, is that what you're saying? It, or, or a sense that they are, they are open to, to doing that because they're seeing others being open to it's it? It's their well. responsibility to present themselves as fully mm. without without uh, treading on you know the the, the private ritual right. as fully as they could because they the, uh, the other group was doing it as well wow. and and it's I, I think that I think it's that working with the community that comes to the national mall in this case uh, like with our Haitians and uh, it's it's not it's not an easy conversation because you are asking people when you talk about ritual ritual has you know form yeah. timing yeah. you're asking them to can we break the ritual in right. part so we can explain to the people you know how do you explain to the people how can we explain to the people experientially yeah. not talk about it not say oh you know we're doing this but in an experience you know what moment of the ceremony is here and what is what is the transformation? Right. So for you as a curator, it sounds like there needs to be a, a, a great deal of trust um, and because there's a vulnerability there and there's also a, a, a desire to be authentic and not simply an academic dissection of, of right. this thing. And right. to trust and to let go because with Mexico, we had the Wirarica. These are shaman. And there were three communities and each brought their shaman. They each chose who was going to represent their community. And those shaman uh, honored the schedule that we had created together with them of, you know, doing the cycle of the year and their ceremonies associated with that. But that's not enough for them. They had to get off the stage, set the chairs in the circle that they felt was appropriate in relationship to the trees, to the land. And they were doing their own rituals there. And they were doing very personal rituals and rituals that, in fact, I'm sure uh, they were, they had their monetary side to it. So I would, you know, I'd get to the mall. Like I said, we don't open till 11 and the audience would be clamoring at the door. (laughs) At 9 o'clock, I said, I'm sorry, we're not open. You said, well, I'm sorry, but I have an appointment. Mm. To that degree that they had already negotiated mm-hmm. what rituals they were privy to and they were going to be doing. And on a private mode, in a public setting, I mean, there was some very interesting things happening there. Yeah, interesting mm-hmm. to negotiate the, 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 the respect, 
the 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 scholarly exploration of it um but but that that tension between performative and and authentic expressions of trade tradition if you're just joining us this is interfaith ish on wowd 94.3 fm i'm your host jack gordon and this morning i've been sitting with teddy r reeves the specialist of religion at the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture, and Dr. Olivia Caraval, the former curator and chair of cultural research and education at the Smithsonian Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage. In the first half of our program, we heard about our, our guests' uh, projects and practices, and now as we do each episode in the second half of our program, it's time to turn the mics over to my dear guests to ask each other some questions of their own. This is an opportunity for you to ask each other anything that you'd like to follow up on about each other's spiritual journeys or life stories, anything that you were familiar with coming in today about each other's programs that you might want to understand better, anything that you realize you may have misunderstood. On our show, we seek to model constructive and respectful dialogue in the spirit of learning, while at the same time not being afraid to roll up our sleeves and get into some interfaith-ish. So with that, I'll turn it over to Teddy and Olivia. Well, Teddy, you've been talking a little bit about a lot of traveling that we've been doing, a lot of communities that you've been visiting. Why don't you give us a little panorama of you know, those communities and how, how they have surprised you? Yeah, so the, the, the travel has... I think that's one of my favorite parts of the job is really being able to go into the community. So uh, in particular, I was in New Orleans just a few weeks ago with the Sisters of the Holy Family, which is the second oldest African-American Catholic nunnery in the U.S. And so these sisters uh, were started 176 years ago. Um, and so sitting with them for a week, conducting over 17 oral histories with sisters ranging from 96 to 33, um, and listening to their stories, their struggles of coming into um, the nunnery in a time where some women, that was the only option. It was either go be a teacher, a nurse, or be a nun. Um, and so listening to their stories and their struggles, um, but also listening to a, a millennial nun who, who came here from Africa uh, and said, you know, this has been a fascinating journey for me, right? being in this space with sisters who are older than me and so navigating that space as a millennial how I practice my faith um, and so that was just one of the fascinating most recent stories um, of being with the sisters for a week um, but also being with the Baha'i community I mean that has been a fascinating experience for me um, of learning and of being open to and and, and experiencing that uh, tradition and so uh, uplifting those voices um, and those unknown voices especially within oftentimes the black community that uh, African Americans have been participating in the Baha'i faith for some time and so was just with a millennial Baha'i in Dallas Texas uh, a week ago and really uh, sitting and listening to her story and how she came into the faith and really how she was a second generation uh, practicer of Baha'i and so that's that's kind of two recent stories um, and and how it surprised me in, in ways for both is how they're choosing to and how they've chosen to engage with faith um, in their particular areas and so what's fascinating is going to these particular areas so I'm in the south um, and I'm talking in Louisiana to nuns but then I'm in Dallas Texas talking the heart of the Bible Belt talking to a black woman who practices the Baha'i faith and so how did asking her how how do you navigate this space of growing up here in the Bible Belt and and especially in black communities um, and just the fascinating story and, and how she's navigated it, the difficulties that she experienced around it 
oftentimes the isolation she experienced in school uh, growing up, but then also the triumph of walking in her own story. Um, and so those are some of the most recent travels that really um, have surprised me, but also have just allowed me to grow. And I think gives me, um, I guess, the necessary, I don't want to say courage, but the necessary um, validity to tell the stories um, that I can, I feel more confident telling these stories when you have it firsthand from people who've lived those experiences. In both these cases, you're talking about women. How, how, do, how has gen, how do, how do you see gender sort of playing out or yeah, so what we've tried to do in the center is to really uplift the stories of uh, black women participating in faith. Um, it's been a very patriarchal system in how we've understood faith, ex especially in the black community, um, and especially within Protestant traditions, um, or Christian traditions, or Abrahamic traditions, um, of really typically uplifting these male figures. So when you're thinking about it's MLK, when you're thinking about Malcolm X, when you're thinking about um, W.E.B. Du Bois, right? When you're thinking about the, so you're, you're always talking about these male figures. So what we've really tried to do is centralize the stories of black women and their experiences in faith. And so we're very intentional about it in how we collect um, down to, you know, collecting from the sisters, uh, making sure that we collect from uh, women pastors, uh, women who are practicing um, in uh, Catholic traditions, women who are breaking barriers in faith. Um, and so really uplifting those stories, not only contemporarily, but also historically. So going back and getting some of those voices that have been lost to the mainstream, um, but trying to bring them forward. And so we've we've tried to make strides in that to, to really decentralize the mill, um, to uplift those stories, but also to say there have been plenty of black women that have been lost to history and plenty of black women who are out here trailing um, are making ways out of no way, which is one of our displays within the museum. And so we want to uplift those stories, uh, highlight those stories and centralize those stories in how we tell the stories of black religion. Yeah, I can understand that in the four years that I worked with Dan Sheehy in curating the music programs, that was a big challenge was, you know, getting more women musicians. And we often find that women also bridge the, the, the sort of the, the belief side a little bit more. Absolutely. The men are more in the bars. <laughs> <laughs> and, and women really are carrying religion forward. Um, and when you're just talking about uh, participation and who's sitting in the pews, who's sitting in these spaces, it's typically black women. Mm -hmm. And so black women are the now, the past, and the future of black religion. And so we have to make sure we tell those stories. Um, so I'm, I'm very much so interested more about your community work. So you're transitioning to this other season or journey of life. Um, talk to I would love to mo know more about how you're weaving the work that you've done over the past 30 years into the work in your local community now. Well, actually, the, the, the first bridge that it was, a little bridge, was when I first worked on my dissertation. And just plainly, because I was working with the Smithsonian, I, had, I was always very interested in the whole phenomena of festival. But just playfully, when my uh, professor asked me, well, what is your dissertation on? I said, I should do it on the Latino festival. This was a festival that started in the... 70s, and it was really a statement of here we are, and it picked up a lot from the black community of taking it to the streets. Mm. And, you know, how are we going to get counted, take us to the streets? And that was a question of the, the census. We're back in the census year. And uh, my professor was serious. And he did mean, do your dissertation on the Latino festival. And what I did, that was my window into 
into the community, a window into a community that was in the making. Mm. I was looking at, you know, Italians, people writing about Italians and Irish, but they were talking about the 19th century. I said, I am lucky enough to be living where a community is being created. So I should, you know, I should look at that, that process. And I do remember, you know, I talked to Casilda and I talked to all these people, you know, interview them. And I would always, you know, I got to the point of saying, you know, how did the community start? I'll never forget Casilda looking at me and says, what community? And then I realized that I, together with these people, we were actually, because of asking each other, we were creating this idea of community mm. and going back and forth. And, you know, this was a whole interesting process. Mm. I think I lost your question someplace around there, but coming back to the <laughs> Latino community, and I live there. Mm. I live in what was, and I continue to be the barrio, although more symbolic because, you know, gentrification has done its do, do, uh, job. And... Uh, Things are continuing happening around me. Mm. I don't have, I, I, yes, I'd love to go off to Mexico. I'd love to go off to other places. I'd love to be in other communities. But I should also be in the community that's surrounding me. And that's where my energy now is. I'm, uh, we did a program with these guys that hang around the corner, mm. you know, very much like Tally's Corner. And uh, they've only been doing it like for 30 years. Mm. We did a beautiful exhibit there and that inspired some of the women because men hang around the corners and say, well, where are the women? Well, I'm not going to put women in there because there's no women. Maybe there's one. And now the women have come to me and said, you know, well, we would like to do our own oral histories. These are the women that are being displaced by the police. They're the vendors on the street. There's when it's really mm. cold in D.C., and uh, in talking about their own stories, what they really want to focus, which takes you a little bit to the belief system, is their, their traditional health knowledge mm. and how to document that and how to see how they use what is available in this new community for healing. Mm. Wow. I, I would love to ask... Um, and, and it's a legacy question, right? After all of this work you've done in your local community, but also at the Smithsonian, what is what do you want to be remembered for, right? <laughs> I know it's a it's a long question, but like when thinking about legacy, I was thinking, I was really thinking about this. You know, I guess I am not a musician. Uh, you know, I'm a middle class Mexican. I am. A, I, what I really do in life. This this was this was once a, a Colombian reporter use this term that I'm a weaver of tales. Mm. And that's really what I feel that my tradition is, is a weaving of these stories, but I'm also a weaving of working with my colleagues uh, who have also, we have learned from each other and we have woven together our practice. I think the Folk Life Festival practice is fascinating and it's been continuous for oh, more than 50 years. What has made, what has allowed for that continuity and that excitement that just still is there? And that, to me, is, is sort of the legacy. Uh, and, uh, and in terms of the Latino community, you have no idea how wonderful it is coming through the Smithsonian, many coming through the Smithsonian now, as fellows, these young uh, Latinos, many Salvadorans who are first generation to go to the university, getting PhDs, and what were they writing about? They're writing about the community that I started writing about, and they're picking up where I left and really refreshing and giving a new, new look to it. I mean, mm -hmm. to me, that is the most incredible uh, uh, legacy mm. to have these young people keeping it alive. Mm. That's really beautiful. And I, I, 
I love this this idea, this image of weaver of tales. Yeah. And I'm so happy to be sitting with with two weavers <laughs> who are weaving together not just stories, oral histories, but but communities together. You you both I think are 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 such excellent examples of of how we can continue to to reach out there and and pull those 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 different strands together and and create this beautiful tapestry when when we when we have a an ever expanding view you know of who is part of our community who is welcome in our communities um and so i i, I just i want to honor both of you for for doing that work and paving the way for for generations to come so thank you both so uh this hour as it often does has has, has quickly come to a close before um we let the two of you go are there programs uh that we can invite folks to to engage with you um and your and your good works in the community yeah, I guess our upcoming God Talk conversation will be in Baltimore. All so right. it'll be Just really close. Right down the road uh, on Friday, April 17th. Uh-huh. Where's that going to be? It's going to be at the Baltimore Hilton. And okay. so more information, they can continue to check the museum's website, nmaahc.si.edu, to find out more information to reserve tickets and things. And and follow Teddy R. Reeves on Instagram. He's a style icon living in his own time. Definitely want to enjoy all the good pics that he puts up there. Um, Olivia? Well, the festival is right around the corner. And right. uh, prior to that, there's a lot of activity going on in D.C. Uh, the center is very interested in working and uh, with the communities here around them, around us. And my colleague, uh, Diana, Cristina Diaz-Carrera and Sojin Kim, they're both very engaged, especially right now, because we will have a, a small Brazilian component of a lot of Brazilian programming right in D.C., Great. And, and how can people find out information? Just go to the website, where it was Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage. Not only do we have a, you know, what, what the programming is, but we also have some wonderful articles happening. The, the magazine has continuing these articles that gives you a real in-depth uh, look, look of some of the things that have happened and what is going to happen. Beautiful. Well, thank you both again for joining me this morning. Really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Dear listeners, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. I want to again thank my guests, Teddy R. Reeves and Dr. Olivia Caraval. And as always, I want to give a shout-out to my fellow Interfaith-ishtronauts, Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz-Miller, and our musical maestro, Jeff Philosopher. And thank you, dear listeners, for spending your hour with us. You can find our entire back catalog of Interfaith-ish episodes on all the podcast platforms. We're on social media at Interfaith-ish. Keep writing us about the Interfaith-ish you wish to dish at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. You can leave us a voicemail on our special listener line, 202-599-2953. Interfaith-ish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at TacomaRadio.org.